Let us turn together to the scriptures of God's word in the New Testament as we read from the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, and you will notice this is the last in the series, at least for the moment in our studies in the book of Acts, as we come this morning to the conclusion of Paul's great second missionary journey. And we are reading the very short section of Acts 18 from verse 18 through to uh, verse 23. Acts 18, verses 18 through 23. Where we read, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers, that is the church which he had established uh, in Corinth, he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cancrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. May God once more bless to our understanding this short but very significant reading from his own inspired word. Now, for the past nine months, and the time span really quite surprised me when I look back in my preaching record, but for the past nine months we have been in the book of Acts on these Sunday mornings together as we have explored only five or six short chapters of this book, from chapters 13 through to the end of chapter 18, where we have arrived this morning. And we've come, as I said a moment ago, to the concluding study in this section of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, at least for the present time, and we've reached a very fitting point as Paul himself has come to the end of one of the most significant missionary journeys that has ever been accomplished in the life of the Christian church. It's a very suitable place, then, for us to stop. And you will have noticed that in verse 23, the very final verse of our reading this morning, Paul has started off already in that verse on the beginning of his third and final missionary journey as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. So today, our section, short as it is, is a concluding and a very significant section indeed. Now, in five brief verses that we read together a few moments ago, Paul, uh, Luke records Paul's movements from the time he left the great commercial city of Corinth, where we were exploring his ministry together for two Sundays, to his arrival in the church that originally sent him out in Syrian Antioch. As he passed en route through Ephesus, and visited Jerusalem via Caesarea before he came finally to that great missionary-minded fellowship of God's people that doubtless he longed to see again with all his heart 
who had sent him out with earnest prayers more than three years before. One of the commentators whom I greatly respect, a man called E. M. Blakelock, who is now with the Lord Jesus in glory, having passed on to his reward fairly recently, says of these five verses, and I want you to listen to this, that it is a strangely compact narrative. Luke appears anxious, he says, to hurry on to the next scene of Paul's evangelism in the third missionary journey. We would gladly hear more about what happened at Kenkrea and what happened at Ephesus. But, he says, perhaps Luke finds a measure of embarrassment in what, after all, forms a puzzle in this portion of the story, that is, Paul taking a vow, a Jewish vow, a Nazarite vow, after his rejection of the Jewish faith. Well, certainly, there are very intriguing things in these five verses and some very important lessons, I believe, that we can learn from this snatch of the Apostle's own personal autobiography. First of all, I want you to look with me at what happened in Corinth, according to verse 18, as Paul was leaving the city. You notice that Luke tells us that Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kenkrea, which was the port for Corinth on the eastern side of that great city, because of a vow that he had taken. Now, as you look at those verses, and as you read them with me, no doubt, in your Bible a moment ago, it seems on the surface to be a very matter-of-fact account of certain events, as Paul was planning to leave the great city of Corinth, where he had been, presumably, for the space of almost two years. But I want you to consider with me several important things from verse 18. There are three in all. The first is the ways of God's grace, beloved. The ways of God's grace stand out at the beginning of verse 18. Paul stayed on for some time. Now, from whatever standpoint you consider that statement, it is a remarkable tribute to the power and sufficiency of God's grace to a much-tried servant of his. For instance, remember that Paul had just come from Athens, the great intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, to Corinth, a very different city, as we've seen, utterly corrupt in its morals. A city, as we said, that was next door, figuratively speaking, to Sodom and Gomorrah itself. And who would ever have anticipated that God would raise a trophy to his son, not in intellectual Athens, but in corrupt Corinth, and enable the servant of the gospel, to stay there for a considerable time. There was no natural affinity with the holy God of heaven and earth and the holy Son of God and this proverbial seat of all impurity and immorality and sinfulness. And 
yet. Paul stayed there for a considerable time. The ways of God's grace, beloved, are beyond the measure of human thinking. And it seems that the gospel is most needed where man is most in need. And again it reminds us, doesn't it, that if the Lord has put you in a difficult place that you long to be out of and you say, oh, if only I could have a more favorable place in which to be a Christian and to witness there, the ways of God's grace, beloved, are beyond the measure of human understanding where we think the gospel might be successful is not necessarily where God's grace plans for the word of his Son should bring forth triumphs and trophies to the grace of God. But if you consider the same thought, the ways of God's grace, from another point of view, you come to the same position of giving a tribute to the sufficiency of that grace for Paul. You ask yourself, you see, in what condition did Paul come to that city? And you remember it was in weakness and fear and much trembling. And who would have thought it possible that Paul would have stayed in that city and that situation, feeling as he did, for the longest period that has yet been recorded in the whole of the Acts of the Apostles as they recount the apostolic ministry. And he was there doing this exacting work of ministry that we have described earlier, where there is a great costliness to the servant of God as he is continually giving out of himself as well as of the word of God to God's people. As he earnestly persuades and thoroughly testifies to the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus as the alone Savior of sinners. And he does it, moreover, this man in weakness and fear and trembling, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that their faith might not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. At the very time he was in weakness and fear and trembling, what a tribute, I say, to the power and sufficiency of God's grace. And who could have seen that there would be such an ingathering of this as this? A marvelous sequel to Paul's ministry in Corinth, where even the civil authority, as we saw last Sunday morning, was brought to vindicate the apostolic ministry in the face of the implacable and determined and diabolical opposition of the Jews who sought to restrict the apostle in all that he did. You see what I'm saying? Paul stayed on in Corinth for some considerable time. What a tribute to the grace and the sufficiency of that grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing I want you to consider as Paul is leaving Corinth. And again in verse 18, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cancrea because of a vow that he had taken. 
Now, it's evident that in spite of all the fruitfulness and the richness of Paul's ministry in Corinth, increasingly his spirit was pressed with the need to leave the city and journey evidently, as we'll see a little later, to Jerusalem. But it's one of the most puzzling things in the book of Acts and one of the most puzzling things in the life of the Apostle Paul. What was this vow that Paul took? that was connected to his leaving Corinth, this very successful ministry that God had given him. When was the vow taken? And above all, the most difficult question of all, why did the apostle who had forsaken Judaism and its religion apparently now return to some aspect of it as he took and subjected himself to a Jewish vow? Well, let me answer those questions, however briefly, this morning. The nature of the vow was evidently a Nazarite vow, and you can read more fully about it in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And we're told in that passage that the purpose of the vow would normally be some cause of great and deep thanksgiving that a godly Israelite would feel or else it would be some greatly desired favor that he was seeking from the Lord. But whatever it was, the vow was to be temporary, usually a month in duration. And during that time, the person who made the vow must allow his hair to grow really long and also abstain from wine, from alcohol of any kind. And at the end of the predetermined period of the vow, the hair was to be ceremoniously cut off and burnt on the temple altar along with certain specific sacrifices. Now, incidentally, if my middle son, who I think is in the service this morning, feels that the justification for long hair is that he is following the example of the Apostle Paul, I need to remind him that after the month is over, it's all got to be shorn off. But when did Paul take this vow? And the answer is that by the time he'd come from Corinth to Cancrea, the port just outside Corinth, it was the time when his hair was to be shorn off, you notice. So he'd clearly taken the vow a month or longer previously when he was still ministering in Corinth itself. And the hair was cut off, And though the text does not tell us, it seems clear that he carried that hair with him all the way to Jerusalem to burn it along with the prescribed sacrifices for the Nazarite vow on the great altar in the temple at Jerusalem himself. That bag of hair accompanied him everywhere. But we come then to the third thing about this vow, and the most difficult, for what reason? Did the apostle subject himself to this vow? It's the most difficult part of the answer. Perhaps it was connected with his missionary work in Corinth, and I could well understand that. Because of that outstanding and supernatural deliverance out of the hand of his enemies, when he was in weakness and fear and trembling and so discouraged, the lowest point, as I reminded you, it seems, of all the apostles' ministry, God had come and almost supernaturally delivered him out of the hand of his implacable enemies. And it's possible that the vow was undertaken as a means of deep 
thanksgiving and thankfulness to God for his amazing deliverance. It could, on the other hand, have been a vow undertaken in terms of his desire for safekeeping on the long and dangerous journey to Jerusalem, although I think that less likely. But the third one is probably the real answer, though none of us can be sure. And it is that being so desirous to find out how the leaders of the church in the mother church of Jerusalem were reacting to his Gentile ministry, that he undertook the vow in the desire before God that he might find their hearts inclined to support him in this great and novel dispatch of the gospel to the Gentile nations. And I think that's where, probably, we're to find the reason for his vow, but none of us can be certain because the sacred record simply doesn't tell us. We don't know. But what we do know is that it was important enough to the Holy Spirit to include this in the divinely inspired record of the apostles' ministry and labor. Now the question is, why would Paul apparently have subjected himself to Judaism and the Jewish Old Testament religion where he had clearly departed from it in so many ways in seeing the Lord Jesus as the fulfillment of so much of the prophecy and the ceremony of the Old Testament. Well, surely we need to remember four things. That at this stage, the Christian faith was the development out of the Old Testament Jewish faith. It grew out of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament, we must remember, was the only Bible the early Christians possessed for many years. They constituted the whole of the scriptures to which Paul so frequently refers in his ministry as he testified to Jesus and as he persuaded men and as he preached the word of God. But secondly, we need to remember there was a short overlapping period until the destruction of the temple and so the cessation of all sacrifices came about. A short overlapping period during which time Christians of Jewish blood observed certain of the Mosaic rites, the ceremonies, and the vows, and so forth, which they refused to make mandatory and obligatory upon their Gentile fellow believers. And that's very important. In that twilight period, that period of overlapping, we get something of this dual observation, but they were very careful not to make this obligatory upon the Gentile believers. And the third thing we need to remember is that Paul still adhered to Jewish customs, or certain of them at least, because even though he was evangelically enlightened, he was still a Jew by birth and culture and religion. And though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, He was still a Pharisee, though a believing one, the son of a Pharisee. And we find him later in Acts 21, bringing another similar type of offering to the temple and being found by his enemies purified according to Jewish ceremony in the temple. And because he loved his people thoroughly, the ancient people of God, and never forgot 
but he too was an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin, and he would do everything that was lawful without compromising the fundamentals of the gospel in order to reach his own people. And in that, of course, there's still a principle for us. But the most important thing of all, of course, is to remember, fourthly, that Paul was liberated from any attempt to keep the law for purposes of justification. But he was still free to take part in certain ceremonial or cultural practices that belong to matters indifferent. In order that, as I indicated, he might the more effectively win to the gospel those of his own race and his own people. John Calvin, I think, summarizes it perfectly when he says that Paul did not shave his head for any sanctification, but only in subservience to the weakness of his brethren, and that vows of this kind I am accustomed, says Calvin, to call vows of charity, not of piety. In other words, vows not undertaken for divine worship, but only in deference to the uh, infirmity of the weak, as he himself says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. Now, I think that explains some of the mystery of this vow, and the principle of it is, in Gentile evangelism today, but whatever doesn't compromise the gospel and the foundations of the faith, we should be willing to consider in our approach to be more effective in evangelizing unbelievers today, just as Jewish believers in evangelizing their own people today need to determine biblically what parts of the Jewish faith of the Old Testament they may still enter into without compromise to the gospel, in order that they might reach more effectively their Jewish friends and neighbors and fellow workers. And it's an area where someone must be very, very careful indeed. Very careful. But from the example of the apostle, clearly there is some application still to the church today. Now, before we leave the verse, and very quickly, you'll notice that he sailed from Kenkria. Does that awaken in your own minds any memory of Paul's letter to the Romans? I suggest it should, because you read in chapter 16 of Romans, verses 1 and 2, that the letter that Paul sent from Corinth to the church in Rome was born by a lady who came from Kenkria. And he commends her in very high terms. Our sister Phoebe, he says, I ask you in Rome to receive her in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. And she came from the little port of Kenkria outside of Jerusalem. How we would long to know more of the reasons behind this warm and loving and gracious commendation of this woman by the apostle as she conveyed that wonderful and vital letter that we know today as Paul's letter to the Romans across the dangerous seas to the church in Rome. So the ways of God's grace, the worthiness of Paul's vow, and the writing of New Testament letters are all associated 
with Paul's residence in Corinth. Now, more quickly, in verses 19 to 21, you notice that he comes to Ephesus. They arrived there. Priscilla and Aquila were left there. He reasoned with the Jews. They asked him to spend more time, but he said, I will return if God wills it. There are just several things, two in fact, that I want to take from these verses. You know, there is a lesson there that we need profoundly, I think, to learn. That the time is not always ripe in terms of the spread of the gospel. One of the questions that we were addressing as a group of ministers together in the North Shore PCA Church just last Friday afternoon and evening was why is it in this day and age we do not see the expansive growth of the Christian church as we see in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, for example. And one of the reasons we came up with is this, that in God's providence there are times and seasons in the life of the church. And you see this specifically and interestingly in Paul's brief visit to Ephesus. Remember, he spent two whole years in the city of Corinth in a very fruitful and expansive ministry. He left the city, came to Ephesus, the second most important commercial city in the whole of the Roman Empire, and he spent only a matter of days or weeks there. Why? because the time was not ripe, and he recognized it, for the seed of the gospel to be sown by the apostolic ministry. I will return, he said, if God wills. And just as before, you remember, in Acts 16, he had been forbidden to come into this area of the province of Asia, and the city of Ephesus particularly, the Holy Ghost had forbidden them to enter Asia. So even now, years later, the time is still not propitious. But later on, in Acts 19, just as he had been clearly forbidden to go there or to continue there, so he was clearly commanded now to preach the gospel in its fullness. And the lesson we are to learn is that just as God prepares the worker for the work, he also prepares the work for the worker. And you know, I'm afraid we are often out of accord with biblical emphases and we pray so often, Lord, equip these pastors who are in training for the work they are to do, but we do not similarly pray, Lord, prepare the work for them, that when they go into that situation, both there will be a prepared worker and a prepared work where the gospel seed may be sown with great effect. The sovereign Lord, in other words, withholds his servants from the ripening harvest fields on occasion to return them again when the fields are golden, ripe, and ready for the sign, and when they too, the workers, are more fully equipped for the ministry to which God has appointed them. And if you read on, you find that the reason why the ministry of Apollos is now mentioned in his coming into the fullness of gospel truth is that he was the plow that God was using to break up the fertile soil in Ephesus that Paul might come in and make such an effect that from Ephesus 
the gospel spread to all the surrounding regions. And doubtless as a result of his work, we have in the book of Revelation the seven churches of that very region addressed from heaven by the risen and ascended Lord, the work that Paul did in Ephesus because he was ready to wait until the harvest was ripe. Now the second thing uh, from this verse is about Priscilla and Aquila. You may notice that the names, for instance, are reversed. Back in the beginning of chapter 18, verse 1, Paul stayed with a Jew from Pontus named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. But in this chapter, the remaining chapter 18, twice over, you notice, in verse 18 and again in verse 19, the names are reversed and the lady is put first. Now, why is this? Certainly not for reasons of courtesy, but we believe because it is Scripture's testimony, very probably, we can't be sure, but very probably to the greater ability and activity of the lady in this marriage. We know of situations like that in the church today. It shouldn't surprise us. Where the husband, though a fine Christian, is in a sense in the shadows where his wife is more active and, in some senses, more able. Now, does this indicate women's ministry? Yes, in a certain sense, and a very carefully qualified sense, because it surely indicates to us that a woman's ministry to Christ, beloved, is not just in the kitchen and washing the dishes after the church fellowship meal. A whole area of Christian ministry is open to godly women in the New Testament in instructing their children. What a glorious honor. In the older women teaching the younger ones, what a priceless privilege. In Phoebe bearing that great and priceless letter of Paul to the Romans that contains the very kernel of the gospel taken by the hand of a woman to the church in Rome, and so we could go on and on. And even teaching, a teaching elder of the church, but in concert with her husband. Do you notice later in verse 26 that it was Priscilla along with Aquila who took Apollos into their home and more fully instructed him in the knowledge of the gospel of Christ. Now clearly he did the instructing, but she was there encouraging and helping as well. So that's why I say women's ministry is broader than we have often come to accept it, but certainly it does not include the teaching or the ruling offices in the church. Now isn't it interesting that Scripture would seem to give unconscious testimony to the value of that great lady who was such an encouragement to the, to the early church? Well, there's more I wanted to say, but I must press on. Thirdly, you notice, and I'm very quick on this, in verse 22, he came to Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing here is in verse 22, he landed at Caesarea, the port for Jerusalem, and went up and greeted the church. You notice it's not mentioned that he went to Jerusalem, but it's clear the church he greeted was not the church in Caesarea because the technical term for going up to Jerusalem from the Greek word anabino is used here of Paul's going up to greet the church. And there's no question whatever, but the purpose of his real leaving Corinth 
was in order to go up and greet the church in Jerusalem. But it's so strange that Jerusalem is not mentioned. And again, E.M. Blakelock says, the name of Jerusalem not being mentioned in the narrative, and yet the narrative clearly being derived by Luke from Paul's own report, indicates that this Jerusalem interlude for Paul was probably an unpleasant memory. And I agree with that. In other words, there is no record of a favorable reception and an enthusiastic welcome for the apostle when he went to greet the mother church in Jerusalem and be received by the apostles and elders of that church. And probably for Paul it was a very disappointing visit. And so it seems that his offering of the Gentiles to God was accepted with great coldness, and that many still in the Jerusalem church were struggling with the whole concept of the gospel being for the Gentiles and not just exclusively for the Jews and those Gentiles who were willing, as we saw earlier, to be circumcised. And his visit seemed, reading between the lines, as I think we must do here, to be all in vain. And the lesson for us, beloved, is that the church does not always recognize and reward the greatest of her children. Think about that. It often fails to see their value and their worth. And I have to tell you with great sadness, but it's not only the Pharisees of the New Testament that stone the prophets and then garnish their tombs. But it can happen in the church today. When we look at Paul, we say, Servant of God, well done! Well hast thou fought the better fight, whose single hast maintained against revolted multitudes the cause of truth in word mightier than they in arms to quote one of John Milton's outstanding passages, but that's not how the church in Jerusalem saw one of its greatest and most able servants. Well, let me finish as we come to Antioch in verses 22 and 23. He came to Antioch, and after spending some time there, he set out from there on the third and final missionary journey. Just one quick thing as we finish. This visit to Antioch was clearly to give the church there a full account of all his missionary journeys and travels and proceedings. It seems as though he stayed there, according to the commentators, from the summer of A.D. 52 to the spring of A.D. 53. We can be fairly sure of the time period because tablets have been discovered in Corinth actually dating the reign of the Roman proconsul Gallio. And we're fairly sure that this was around the summer of A.D. 52 to the spring of A.D. 53 that Paul stayed in Antioch. Now, here is the point with which I leave you, that the center of the church's outreach, the place where the most important things were going on in the life of the early church, was not in the headquarters at Jerusalem, it was in that little, almost side eddy 
in Antioch. And isn't that interesting? The headquarters were in Jerusalem, but the missionary office of the church, so to speak, was in Antioch of the Gentiles. And it should convey to us, beloved, and I believe the Holy Ghost would convey the lesson to us, that God in certain times of the church's history may have to bypass, as it were, the headquarters of the church and make the truly significant things happen elsewhere. And that's why in this day and age I believe we should be much encouraged that even small congregations and things that appear to be weak and little and insignificant may not be the weak and little and insignificant things that we sometimes are tempted to think of them, and that God in his sovereignty will have his work done even when those in the position and the place of leadership and authority who should be doing the work are for one reason or another unable to do it. Let me summarize everything. As this journey ends, it is an amazing accomplishment, this second missionary journey. Over three years, a distance of something like 2,800 miles by land and sea together, a very considerable travelogue in those days without the modern means of communication by land and sea and air that we have today. An incredible apostolic missionary journey, with no committee behind this man, far distant from his supporting church, no financial resources, so that at times he had to work with his own hands to support himself, his health often precarious, and in addition to everything else, those inveterate enemies, the unbelieving Jews, dogging his heels wherever he went. What a model of persistence. What a challenge to the Christian church. Oh, may God in his grace give us all both the conviction and the ability to learn the lessons that we have been in over these many months to the church's growth and to the Lord's blessing in our own lives. Corinth, Ephesus, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and finally Antioch itself. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this passage and what it has brought to our minds and pray that this long series may indeed bring rich fruit into our lives to the strengthening of God's church. For Jesus' sake, amen.